James is going to go turn down the music over here. I saw him leaving. Psalm 68 tonight. Psalm chapter 68. Boy, we're working our way through Psalms. Before we get into it tonight, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word and the opportunity, Lord, just to study through the scriptures. Lord, the nuggets we uncover, the things that we learn as we just open our hearts to you. Lord, we pray that as we go through your word, may your word go through us, challenge our thinking, cleanse our thoughts, renew our minds. Lord, help us to line up the outer man with the real us, the true person that you've created in our hearts. Help us to live out who we are in Christ on a daily basis. And may tonight give us strength and instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you view the Psalms as a treatise on theology, you're going to get confused. For at times, the psalmist himself struggles with his life and with his faith. You see, the Psalms are not a system of theology as much as they are a diary of devotion. Think of it this way. Genesis through Esther records the history of the Hebrews, the steps of their their feet and the work of their hands. But the psalm describes the beat of their heart. It's a journal of relationship between God's people and their God. Author Harold Fickett writes, The psalms tutor my soul in my love for God. And indeed they do. The psalms are prayers and reflections and even complaints from men who love God dearly but who are struggling with life and its severities. Ron Allen sums up the Psalms in seven words. I like this. He he says the Psalms are all about this. Life is hard, but God is good. (laughs) Well, Psalm 68 is to the chief musician, and it's a Psalm of David. You know, today we live in what we call the day of man. Rebellious men are having their say on planet earth. But the day is coming when God will arise, and God will have the final word. The Bible calls this time yet future the day of the Lord. Jesus will return to earth and He'll take control of a world that belongs to Him. A new day will dawn. And Psalm 68 describes God's takeover of the rebel planet. He says, let God arise, let His enemies be scattered, let those also who hate Him flee before Him. You know, when my boys were little, we'd all be in the same room trying to do something and They'd be going nuts, bouncing off the walls, pushing the limits. And I would tell them, settle down, boys. I would warn them to stop this or stop that. And on occasion, they would refuse to take me seriously until finally I stood up. I rose to my feet. And the moment Dad stood up, they knew that he had had enough. And all three boys, man, they just scattered. (laughs) Sad for them, by the time I arose, it was too late. But this is a metaphor on our world today. The kids have had their turn, and they have turned the place into a zoo. Mankind has gone bonkers, and God is warning us right now. The day is coming when enough will be enough. God will arise. His enemies will recognize He means business, and they'll all scatter in fear. But sadly, by that time... It'll be too late. For as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. He calls to us, sing to God, sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds by His name, Yah. And rejoice before Him. Yah is a Hebrew nickname for God. It's a contraction of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. You know that Jehovah is the English form of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yah is from the verb to be. And it speaks of God's self-existence. God is. God isn't trying to become. God is not a has-been. God is. He always is. He is self-existent. You see, the universe is an integrated system for the most part. All things depend on something else for their survival except God. 
God is the only truly self-existent one. And we should praise Him. All that we have, all that we know, is a gift from Him. Notice one other detail here in verse 4. God is pictured as Him who rides on the clouds. You know, we learn from Ezekiel chapter 1 that God's throne in heaven is a chariot throne. Throne chariots were common among oriental rulers. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, he sees God's throne literally rev up. The wheels begin to spin within the wheels. Other passages indicate that God is always on the move. He doesn't just rule in, from one place, but he rides on the clouds in this throne chariot. I love that picture of God. God is the ultimate mover and shaker. In fact, many believe the fiery chariot that swooped down and picked up Elijah was probably God's throne chariot coming to rescue his servant and take him to heaven. Well, here, we're to praise. We're to sing praises to him who rides on the clouds. Verse 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. Isn't that wonderful? A father of the fatherless and a defender of the widows. Our God is the God of the underdog. He has a special place in his heart for the weak and the oppressed and the disadvantaged. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Well, I love this verse. God sets the solitary in families. In other words, God takes care of single people. You know, this is one of the purposes of the church. We're God's family to folks who have no family. We should really function as one big extended family. Did you know that a recent poll of 13 to 24-year-olds, it was done by MTV, yielded some surprising results. Did you know that what makes young people happy is not what most adults would think? 73% of the respondents said that what made them the most happy was spending time with family. The next greatest determinator of happiness was time with friends. And that shouldn't surprise us. Not with the Facebook and the MySpace and the cell phone and the IM and the text messaging and the constant connectivity of this generation. They crave relationship. They crave connection. They crave people in their life where they can build relationship. Hey, God has called the church to this task. To set the solitary in families. Verse 7. Oh God... When you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O oh God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Every time Israel got tired and weary and their faith started to faint, God would come and confirm His promises. He would strengthen Israel's trust in Him. And He does the same for us. Notice, He confirms His inheritance when we're weary. He says, Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from Your goodness for the poor. You know, we've dwelt in God's goodness, He says. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Notice this. She who remains at home gets a share of the spoils. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24. After David defeated the Amalekites, David said to his army, But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. That was David's habit. In Israel, those who stayed in the rear to guard the supplies were just as important as those who went out to the front lines and fought the battles and engaged the enemy. And I believe the same is true in the church. You know, if you serve a support role, don't think that you're less vital or less important than those who are out front. Hey, both roles are strategic. He says, though you lie down among the sheepfolds, yet you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. Israel's going to go through some tough times. She's going to have to lie down with some smelly sheep. Ever lie down with any smelly sheep? 
Probably not a good thing. But one day God will exalt his people. And they will get wings like a dove, even golden feathers. That's got to be good. He says, when the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. Now, Zalman is a mountain peak north of Samaria. And in the wintertime, the locale receives a lot of snow. But the snow rarely sticks in this location. He, the psalmist is saying this is the case with Israel's enemies, both then and now. That they may occupy for a time. It may snow there, but they don't stick. The land belongs to the Jews. God upholds it for his people. He says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Bashan goes by another name. It's called today the Golan Heights. It's the high ground, the mountainous region north of the Galilee. This is the area where three nations meet, Lebanon and Syria and Israel. The tallest peak there is Mount Hermon, where Jesus was transfigured. The peak rises 9,200 feet above sea level. But though these mountains are majestic, they're, the envy of, they're envious of another mountain, even more special, which he says, why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. In contrast to the beauty and the splendor of the Golan Heights, Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, this is the mountain that God desires to dwell in. This is the special mountain. The temple was built on Moriah. It was God's home on the earth. Here he's saying that the mountains of the Golan are envious of this other mountain, this mountain in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. He says the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Do you recognize those words? You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have given gifts to men. That's from Ephesians chapter 4. That's a description that's often rendered of Jesus. Now here's the picture of a victorious general returning from battle. His chariots are on parade. His captives are in tow. He has his spoils in his hands. This is the picture of Jesus at his second coming. After he defeats his enemies and comes as a conquering general with the spoils of victory. But Ephesians 4 applies this passage to the victory that Jesus also won at his first coming. Paul says that after his crucifixion, Jesus ascended into heaven where he led captivity captive and gave spiritual gifts to men. He emptied out Hades of the Old Testament saints who had waited there in faith of a finished atonement. And then he brought them into the presence of the Lord, led captivity captive, and through his spirit, Jesus has now given supernatural gifts to his people, spiritual gifts he's given to us. I'm really excited. Uh, Kathy's going to be teaching on spiritual gifts through the... Uh, in the ladies' Bible studies coming up this spring. I think it's going to be wonderful. Jesus has given us these spiritual gifts. He says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Oh, my. That that's might be the best thing you'll hear tonight. The Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. You just need to pause and you need to think about that. That's what Selah means. That God has loaded us down with benefits. Have you ever opened up the wrong side of the pepper? You know black pepper, it comes in a little, a little can, and on one side, it's the pouring side. It's just wide open. But on the other side of the pepper, it's got the little holes in there. That's the sprinkling side. You following me? Well, on occasion, I'll open up the pepper, and I'll, and I'll open up the wrong side, you know. And I'll dump it out too quick. But I want you to know, God does this all the time. For whenever God dispenses His blessings, He never uses the sprinkling side. He always uses the pouring out side. God is always pouring out the pepper, dumping it out on us, dumping out the blessings. He loads us down and He showers us with blessings. He doesn't just sprinkle us with blessings. 
He doesn't just pepper us with blessings. Boy, He pours out on us. He loads us down daily with His benefits. Isn't that wonderful? Ephesians 1 tells us that He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 20, our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever had one of these escapes from death? Well, where did it come from? It came from God. He's the one. To Him belongs the escapes from death. God is the author of the narrow misses in our lives. How many of you have had a narrow miss? A car cut right in front of you right at the intersection and had you not, you know, stopped. And a split second later, you know, you'd have been a goner. We've all had little brushes with death. Escapes from death belong to God, we're told. But God will wound the head of His enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in His trespasses. Now notice the contrast here. God loads His people with benefits, but He scalps those who persist in sin. That's just God. If you get on His side, He's going to be really, really good to you. But if you rebel against Him, and if you're obstinate, and if you sin against Him, He's going to scalp you one day. The people said, the Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. You don't want to be one of God's enemies, okay? Bad things happen to God's enemies. You know, God is a God of peace after He kills all His enemies. It's true. You don't want to be God's enemy. You want to line up on God's side of the ball. You want to be His friend. He wants to be your friend. As a matter of fact, despite everything you've done, every way you've blasphemed Him and mocked Him and thumbed your nose in His face, despite all of that, He still wants to be your friend. And you can have a relationship with God tonight if you desire. But you don't want to be His enemy. He says, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Actually, the whole chapter depicts the conquering king returning from battle to reign from the sanctuary, from the temple in Jerusalem. And Psalm 68, of course, has a double meaning. It depicts David returning from one of his conquests, but as we pointed out, it also depicts King Jesus at his second coming. In the next few verses, David sees his subjects coming out to greet him, and he addresses each group. He says, singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels or tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Many foreign kings came and paid tribute to David and to his God. They'll come again at the end of the age to pay tribute and pay homage to Jesus. He says, rebuke the beasts of the reeds. The hippopotamus was the beast of the reeds. The hippopotamus was a symbol of Egypt. Rebuke the herds of bulls. The bulls were the mascots of the Assyrians with the calves of the people. God is rebuking the Gentile powers of David's day. He says, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver, scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envy, envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. All the nations will one day come and worship God. And notice that, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. How do you know when somebody's serious about their devotion and their homage? When they're really serious about paying tribute? How do you know? When they put their money where their mouth is. That's how you know. Same, same is true today. Everybody can talk about serving God until the pastor starts talking about tithing or giving an offering. You know, it's back in the old days, the, the French, whenever the French soldiers were baptized, they were always baptized with their sword up above their head like this so that their whole body was baptized but not their, not their hand with their sword because they wanted to wield their sword as, as they pleased. They didn't want that to be under the domain of Christ. Today, when people get baptized, they'd be more honest if they held up their wallet like this, you know, and got baptized. 
Notice this. Till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. This is how you know you're serious about your devotion and your, your love for God. He says, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. There again, God riding on the clouds. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribes strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David. It's divided into three stanzas. Verses 1 through 21 are the cries of the victim. They focus on David himself. You'll see his use of the personal pronouns I and me and my. Verses 22 through 28 are cries for vengeance. They focus on David's enemies. And there he uses the third person pronouns they and them and their. Whereas verses 29 through 36 are cries of victory and they focus on the Lord and David employs the pronouns he and him and his. Now remember David is not only a poet but he's also a prophet. And there are times in the Psalms, as in in this Psalm and in other Psalms, where his speech transcends his own feelings and it becomes prophetic of a son of David, Jesus Christ. In fact, here the victim's cries are actually those of the crucified one hanging from the cross. The cries of vengeance are those of the victor at the final battle, at the second coming. And the cries of victory are those of the king of kings who sits on the throne and rules the world. Well, we're told, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the waters overflow me. At the southwest corner of Jerusalem, there was a gate known as the Dung Gate. You probably know why they called it the Dung Gate. It was the sewage dump. It led out into the Valley of Tophet. This was where the city's sewage was deposited. And if you were walking along the ledge, overlooking the valley, you could actually slip. And you could slide down into the mire. The trouble in which the psalmist here finds himself has caused him to feel like he slid into the manure. He's down in the mire. You know, the Gospels record the facts of the crucifixion. And in many ways, Psalm 69 gives us the feelings of the crucified. On the cross, God deposited on Jesus the spiritual sewage of the entire human race. The sin of the gossip and the murderer and the rapist and the pornographer. All our sins were placed on Jesus. The sinless one who had never known sin suddenly felt himself slipping into the bubbling cesspool of human sin. What an awful feeling that must have been. In the words of the poet, Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, thou holy one, to take away my sin. This psalm helps us to understand. Listen to John Phillips describes how what Jesus endured there on the cross. He writes this. The cross was like a mighty lightning rod reared against the skyline of the world. The descending fury of God's wrath was caught by that tree and its dying victim. The high voltage of God's righteous wrath against the human race exploded In the soul of the Savior, the human race escaped instant incineration because of the mercy of God. And the Savior himself cries out in verse 3, I am weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Have you ever cried until you can't cry anymore? Ever drain dry your tears? He says, those who hate me without a cause have more are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Notice his enemies are many, they are mighty, and they are mistaken. He's innocent. 
He says, oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. These are the words of David, not the Savior because Jesus had no sin. He says, let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. In other words, don't let me be anyone's stumbling block. He says, because of your, for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face for his sake. Shame. He's bore the shame. You remember Hebrews 12 verse 2 speaks of Jesus on the cross. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised enormous shame. He bore enormous shame for you and me. He says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. This is true of Jesus. You remember after the resurrection, it wasn't until after the resurrection that Jesus' family even believed in him. Jesus was rejected by his immediate family during his ministry. By the way, according to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. They're named there. Roman Catholicism holds to the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Four brothers and two sisters ain't perpetual virginity. They'll try to pass off Jesus' siblings as cousins, but the text is really clear. He did have brothers and sisters. After um, Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had a, a, a normal husband-wife relationship. Verse 9. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And in John 2, verse 17, we're told that Jesus' disciples remembered this verse after Jesus rose up and drove the charlatans and the money changers out of the temple. They remarked, they, they tied that action to this verse. They said, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And of course, Jesus is driving out the money changers. This is what, one of the reasons that provoked the Jews. To murder him. The reason they hated him so much is that he had cut into their profits. He says, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Imagine that. When Jesus was crucified, drunks from the local taverns mocked the one that one day angels will praise and worship. How's that for an irony? But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. On the third day, Jesus escaped. The mire called death. He says, hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity. But there were none, and for comforters, but I found none. The disciples had fled. Peter had even denied him. And they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Remember, there was a point in the crucifixion when the Roman soldiers offered Jesus a shot of gall. It was a stupefying potion. It sort of acted as a narcotic the gall was intended to kill Jesus' pain, but he refused to put it to his lips. Why? Because Jesus had been sent to bear the full brunt of God's wrath towards sin. And toward the end of Jesus' ordeal, the soldiers again used a sponge. They wet it. They put a vinegar on it, and they put it to his lips. This time there was no uh, numbing potion in it, and so he took it. And it moistened his lips and it allowed him to speak his final words. Verse 22 begins the next stanza. We shift now from the victim to his vengeance. 
Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. And the worst of the curse, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Wow, what a change of tone. You know, on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mercy was on His mind. But we've had a long time now to to know what we've done. And, And when Jesus comes at His second coming, it won't be mercy on His mind. It will be vengeance. There'll be no pardon then. Pardon will not be His rallying cry. The time of forgiveness will be over and the Christ-rejecting world will be blotted out of the book of the living. Verse 29 starts the third stanza. And again, the tone shifts a final time from vengeance now to victory. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull which has horns and hooves. Notice this, a song of praise and a song of gratitude endears God more than a prime bull for sacrifice. What is the sacrifice he he seeks from us today? It's the fruit of our lips. It's our praise to God. He says, the humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. That they may dwell there and possess it. This is all the Jews desire today. To live peacefully in their land. Without the daily threat of Hamas rockets. Being shot indiscriminately across their borders, into their territory. This is all they desire. That they may dwell there and that they may possess it. Also the descendants of His servants shall inherit it and those who love His name shall dwell in it. Israel will occupy Judah for generations, we're told. Now Psalm 70 may have been a fragment of Psalm 40. If you go back and compare to the two, the five verses of Psalm 70 are nearly identical to the last five verses of Psalm 40. This psalm may have been taken from Psalm 40 as sort of an emergency psalm, I like to call it. This is kind of a spiritual 911. You know, when God's people find themselves in trouble, here's a quick psalm that you can just pop out and pray Psalm 70. He says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. In other words, he asked God to respond swiftly to his cry. You know, police departments and operators at 911 centers are judged by their response time. How quickly did they get to a cry for help? This becomes their their judgment, the ways of judging their performance. Here God is being asked to speed up his response time. God, make haste. Get to me quickly, Lord. I I need your quick response. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha, I got you. Every time David made a mistake, his enemies were right there to cheer. Aha. We, We knew, we knew you would blow it. And here he asked God to put them to shame. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Did you know that's our job? To magnify God. Here is what should be on our lips continually. Let God be magnified. Now now we have a modern way of saying the same same thing. We, We can say it this way. We need to zoom in on God. This needs to be our job. You know, magnification is the zoom button on your camera. It blows God up. 
It gets enlarged when you zoom in. We need God, His traits and His deeds to take up a bigger chunk of our attention. We need to magnify Him. You know, too often God is, is sort of the little picture in the picture. You got one of those TVs, the picture in the picture TVs? Where you can put the little block on the side, open the corner there. And too many times God is like in that little picture in the picture, the little block up in the corner of the television. We need to blow Him up. He needs to be the big part of the screen. He needs to, to be enlarged. We don't need to contain him in some little tiny block on the screen. He needs to have the whole screen. We need to let him dominate our thoughts. This is what it means to let God be magnified. He says, but I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Notice that he says, I am poor and I am needy. I need your help. Remember Revelation chapter 3 describes a church. The church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. It is the church that Jesus spit out of his mouth. So it wasn't a good church. It wasn't headed in the right direction. And if you'll remember, they said just the opposite. They said, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. Here in contrast, the psalmist says, I am poor and I am needy. The first step for God to meet your need is for you to admit it. For you to come clean. For you to desire it. Now the older I get. And I'm getting older. The more that I love Psalm 71. It was written by an Israeli senior citizen. Some have suggested David. Perhaps it was Samuel. Maybe even Jeremiah. But it was written by someone in their metallic years. And I'm sure you're familiar with your metallic years. The metallic years are later in life when your teeth are gold, your hair is silver, and there's lead in the seat of your pants. Those are the metallic years. Psalm 71 is the AARP theme psalm. It's been called the Ode of the Old Man or Grace for the Gray-Haired. This is for the 60-plus crowd. Verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. For you have given the commandment to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You know the elderly desperately need to feel secure. You know, as our strength begins to erode and as our health fails and as our friends begin to die and as our minds tend to forget and we're not quite as sharp, we start to feel very, very vulnerable. And just as the Lord here challenges us to trust Him when we're young, in Psalm 71 we're challenged to trust God when we're old. For God is the same God. And He is just as faithful to the old as He is to the young. He's a refuge and a rock and a fortress for both grandkids and grandparents. He says, deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. God had sustained him when he fought battles and when he jumped walls when he was young. Now God is going to be with him and will not let him down when his knees begin to ache and his back goes out and he starts to get old. He says, by you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. From his youth, the psalmist had learned to trust God. His faith had been built on a lifetime of observing the Lord's faithfulness. Now in his old age, he should rest in what God has done for him in previous years. He should let his faith build on God's past provision. You know, there's a Jewish proverb that goes like this. For the ignorant, old age is a winter. But for the learned, old age is a harvest. It's a time to reap the seeds that were sown earlier. He says, I have become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. Here's why old, old age can be a trying time in life. When our strength begins to fail. You know, normal tasks that 
that used to be easy, now they become difficult. And here the psalmist asks God to be his strength in his old age. Did, did you hear about the 80-year-old guy? Went to the doctor, he got a clean bill of health. His doctor told him that other than his eyesight being a little bad, you know, he was in fantastic shape. The old boy said, well, you know, Doc, I, I, I live a blessed life. You know, God just takes care of me in some amazing ways. The doctor asked him, he said, well, how's that? What do you mean? He says, you know, every night when I get up to go to the bathroom, the Lord just turns on the light for me. It just happens. The doctor was kind of taken back. He says, you got to be kidding. You don't mean that God himself turns the light on for you. He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Every night I get up to go to the bathroom, God turns on the light. Well, a few weeks later, the, the man's wife was in to see the doctor. After her exam, the doc told her, he said, you know, other than your husband's eyesight being a little off, you know, he's in great shape physically. But mentally, I'm a little concerned about the old boy. I mean, he thinks that God himself is turning the light on every time he goes to the bathroom. That's when the, the wife thought for a minute, and she sort of smiled, and she said, that rascal. I thought somebody was peeing in the refrigerator. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. <laughs> Old age is full of trials, man. And here's one that compounds the problem. You know, we live today in a youth-oriented society. You know that. You watch television today, and you, and you get the message that if you're not young, and if you're not trim, and if you're not sexy, man, life has passed you by. You know, according to one Gallup poll, 79% of elderly people in our country have never received any financial help from their children. 79%. The rest of us, we need to value the elderly. Old age should be esteemed, not frowned upon. Those of us with a few years under their belt, they should be prized. They should be valued. They have much to offer the rest of us, their experience and their wisdom and their faith. Verse 10 tells us, For my enemies speak against me, and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed who are adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you. Yet more and more, my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. For I do not know their limits. Oh my, what a tremendous verse. God's salvation and His righteousness are boundless. They're limitless. His grace and His mercy can never be depleted. It can never be exhausted. God's love is a love without limits. You know, I, I watch some people as they get older, and their, their, their world, their conversation, their life becomes complaints and woe is me, just that downtrodden kind of feeling that the years have, placed upon them, the burden the years have placed upon them. Notice the psalmist here. He says, no. He says, I will hope continually. And more and more, I'll praise him. Here the psalmist takes a different attitude. The older I get, the more I'm going to praise him. The more thankful I'm going to be for the blessings he's poured out on my life. He says, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. And to this day, I declare your wondrous works. You know, like all men, the psalmist knew that he had to get old, but he was determined to never get cold. You got to get old, but you don't have to get cold. You can remain on fire for God. Our motto needs to be faithful to the finish. He says, now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Notice this. He's going to remain aggressive. He's going to declare to the younger generation the things he's learned of God. You know, young folks do have an obligation to the elderly to value them and to support them. 
to strengthen them as life becomes hard. But seniors also have a responsibility to the younger generation to teach them the ways of God and the knowledge they've gained. I wonder how much knowledge and how much experience is being wasted in our fellowship because older folks have chosen to sit out their golden years rather than teach Sunday school, rather than mentor a teenager, rather than to join a Bible study full of younger women and younger men. They've chosen to just sit on the sidelines. Wisdom that the rest of us needs is being wasted. This isn't a good strategy for younger folks or for older folks. The best way for an older person to stay young is to hang out with younger people. And young people gain wisdom from elderly people who have perspective and who share it. I love what Robert Browning said of youth. They see but half. That's why we need old and young to combine together to get the complete picture. Verse 19 tells us, Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Also with the lute I will praise you and your faithfulness, O my God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. Now the postscript to Psalm 72 tells us that it is a psalm of Solomon. Solomon wrote three psalms that appear in the scripture. He wrote Psalm 72, he wrote Psalm 127, And the third song that he wrote is an entire book called The Song of Solomon. And yet, though Solomon penned Psalm 72, the words recorded are actually those of David, Solomon's father. For notice verse 20 concludes the psalm, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Psalm 72 is actually the last words of King David before he died that were penned by Solomon. You know, it's interesting to study the parting words, the epithets of famous people. You know, you learn a lot about a person's life by their final utterance. Edgar Allan Poe, who was a notorious unbeliever, he said this when he died, God help my poor soul. A strong believer, on the other hand, D.L. Moody, he spoke these words on his deathbed, This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. Boy, how do you want to go out? Like Edgar Allan Poe or like D.L. Moody? Here's one of my favorite final sayings. One older Christian man said as he passed from this life, he said, Blessed be God, though I change my place, I shall not change my company. I like that. And last but not least, Mel Blank, the voice of the cartoon character Porky the Pig. You know what his gravestone reads, don't you? That's all, folks. Well, One more thought. Some of David's words to Solomon were ambitions not just intended for Solomon, but for a later son of David, Jesus Christ. Well, the song begins. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Notice the scope of the prophecy extends far beyond Solomon. To another son of David, Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus referred to himself as what? As the one who is greater than Solomon. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You know, when Jesus rules the earth, he'll rule from sea to shining sea. He'll have dominion over every corner of the planet. Verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness, wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. 
one day mocking tongues are going to lick his dust. Jesus Christ, not one to be, not one to be treated lightly. He says the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles. This is possibly the British Isles, maybe even the New World. You know, in ancient times, Tarshish was the furthest west you could possibly travel. Some people thought it was Gibraltar. Some people thought it was Great Britain. Some people even assume that it's the Western Hemisphere. But the kings of Tarshish and its isles will present presents. The queens, kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Here, east meets west. Where? At the feet of Jesus. They'll all bring gifts to him. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, but his reign will also be one of compassion and benevolence. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. Daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. And on on the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in Him. All nations shall call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Oh, listen, who only does wondrous things. All God's work is wondrous. He does nothing haphazardly. He does nothing sloppily. There is excellence in all that He does. Who only does wondrous things. Verse 19. And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Boy, some wonderful psalms here tonight.